Amen and amen. Let you take the word of God and turn to Philippians chapter number two this morning. Philippians chapter number two. If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And we'll take our reading out of the same portion that we have the last few weeks now, uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter number 2. So Philippians chapter number 2, verses 1 through 11, but our emphasis this morning and exposition will be out of 5 through 8, verses 5 through 8. Let us read. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Once again, Father, we come to you just to thank you for the immeasurable grace, Father, that you've extended to us this day. Lord, it manifests itself in just a whole host of ways particularly in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, even as we wake this morning, it's often very convicting how far we can go throughout the day, Father, without recognizing those blessings that you have set before us and even what we might refer to as common grace. Father, we woke up this morning in liberty, I trust in warm beds, Surrounded by loved ones, your creation, Father, drove here this morning under the sunlight, relative freedom, Father, to gather together and worship. And um, how often, that Father, that goes to unnoticed in my own heart, in my own mind. May that not be true this morning of spiritual things. Father, as we open up the Word of God, how often we can treat it the same way. Just blots upon a page. But how gracious you were, Father, to give us the Word of God. Father, make it precious in our hearts this morning as we gather around it. May we see it this morning as our food in which we must feed on Christ by faith. Father, may we not walk through the next hour in our minds and hearts and fail to see the glory of Jesus Christ. I don't know that I'll do it that well. That is, proclaim His majesty and glory. Father, it seems like too holy 
and too great of a task. And I seem too frail in my spirit this morning, Father. And my mind seems to have escaped me and to be so scattered. Pray, Father, that you would just ease it this morning. That you would give us all just a relative peace in our souls. Help us, Father, to control our minds and stay them upon the one who is worthy this morning. Um, to retain our thoughts and our attention for the next hour. Father, may you show us the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ, even apart, Father, from our imperfections and our fallible character. Father, in our insufficiency, to be able to explain those things. We pray, Lord, that you just help us to be faithful to your word and that you'd use it to transform us, Father, by the renewing of our minds. We pray, Lord, that because we met together this morning and you were in our midst, your presence was made known, your son was exalted, and your spirit um, ruled and reigned in our hearts, Father, that we would walk away more like your son. Father, this work we trust with you because we know that we cannot accomplish it in our own strength. Father, bring dead men to life this morning and make those who are alive, Father, more faithful. Cause us to walk in your statutes, Father, because you showed us your glory. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Once again, the emphasis this morning will be in verses 5 through number 8. Particularly, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I think most of you have been with us. You should remember that in Philippians chapter number 2, we have this plea from the Apostle Paul to a particular congregation at Philippi for unity within the local church. That definitive group of believers there. He's not simply writing to the church at large, although we know for subsequently 2,000 years, God is just tremendously blessed as he's preserved this word, not only for Philippi, um, but, but also for the church throughout the ages and every generation until that, that second coming. Um, but particularly, it was written with names in the apostles' mind, trouble happening possibly at the church at Philippi, issues that were arising. If not, there was a proclivity or a tendency um, there to have disunity. Um, thus, a portion of this four chapters is given over to that particularly, particular issue, an exhortation uh, to unity. This portion really begins in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 27. Just to remind you, he begins with a call to the congregation to live a life or to live lives corporately, worthy of the gospel in accord with their heavenly citizenship. They're now citizens of a heavenly realm, not only earthly, um, but, but spiritually speaking, of a higher plane in which Jesus Christ, the Father, the Spirit, rules and reigns in unbridled authority. He speaks of unity necessary 
And he, he relates that to the unity necessary in this world as citizens to live in accord with the gospel by which they've been saved <coughs> to stand against the adversaries that God had providentially um, allowed to enter into their lives. He speaks of the benefits in that portion and the blessings that come with that type of tribulation. But to experience also those types of blessings, it is essential to have corporate unity. It's easy to read this um, passage and even these letters largely in an individualistic type of manner, um, seeking individual blessing and individual help and refuge um, in our daily individual lives. But overwhelmingly, the New Testament, especially the epistles, um, is written in a plural form, in a corporate manner, to churches. And these issues that are to be dealt with are to be dealt with in a corporate manner. So these are unique blessings that are not only available to the individual, but also to um, corporate bodies. And that is what he is arguing for there in verses 1, 27 through 28. Thus he issues the call to unity to the church into Verse 1, therefore, he says, or we could say because of this, and in order to motivate them, Paul reaches into their minds and hearts, calling them to remember Christ's work in them. That's the <coughs> purpose of that portion of Scripture. He's not asking if in the sense of an actual question, but it's rhetorical. Um, he understands that those at Philippi have these things, and if those people at Philippi have these blessings, these realities in their heart, then... Strive for unity. That's what he says. Because of this, if you want those blessings of corporate unity against your adversaries, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and we could almost add um, interpretably, and there is, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, and I'm, I'm convinced that Paul believes that there is, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, <coughs> of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Thus he continues to instruct them as believers on the principal graces that they'll need to accomplish such a task. So not only do we need to, uh, the blessings in chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, but if you're going to have those blessings, there's a unity that is necessary. And the way to achieve that unity, there are principal graces that are needed. They're essential. And those two principal graces we looked at um, are, are essentially one grace with, uh, think of it like one coin with two sides. On one side, you have humility or a lowliness in mind. On the other, you have a selflessness, a self-forgetfulness, or you may look at it um, as, as a perception of others, right? That, that if we're going to have true humility, um, it comes in, in more than just a, a, a low view of oneself. But that lowliness of mind um, in the presence of Christ leads us to a true preference, a true value of other people, thus that that lowliness leads us to obedience, to service, and to sacrifice um, to Christ and to others. A true humility produces a love for others. So there is this necessity of humility in the life of the congregation pervading it um, such that unity would even be a possibility. It's not something that we muster up by strength or ingenuity. 
um, but by the grace of God. And God gives that grace to his children. Paul, the blessed apostle, will continue in verse number 5 to drive this home even more in our hearts. And he'll do it in just the most glorious way. Let me just say initially that this really is an impossible task this morning. We have before us one of the loftiest passages in all of Scripture. And it would be easy this morning um, to lose heart. It would be easy this morning even to get lost in some of the finer points of theology. There's a mountain of work done on this passage, what it means, the literary genre, the context, the theological nuances. You could spend months and years, and people have, in trying to figure out all the um, exegetical uh, difficulties even that are before us. Um, But I don't want to necessarily give you all of that this morning. I want to give you, um, in some sense, what I believe Paul was trying to strive for, um, and that is the point of the passage. And the point of the passage is, is to exalt Christ in such a way that they would see Him and see this pattern of humility that it would prick their hearts, change their hearts in such a way, convict their souls, that it would provoke them to faithfulness. Um, And particularly produce in them, through the picture of the gospel, um, a humble heart that would give them a love for their brethren um, in which they would... They would serve one another. So Paul, like a skilled painter, will bring to life in the minds of the Philippians here something that maybe they only had a small grasp of before. It would be like trying to describe the most beautiful vacation spot or to describe the mechanics of how something works. And it just doesn't quite click. And then someone pulls out a picture or a video And it makes sense. It could be this morning that if they were there dialoguing with the Apostle Paul and he was trying to drive home the same thing, that he would have recounted all of those things and and he would have argued and, and, and they would have went back and they would have said, Paul, we understand what you're saying. The adversaries are great and we need to be unified. We need to link arms and go to battle. We believe that what Christ has accomplished is out of this world, the eternal truths are glorious. And yes, we believe that we have exhortation in Christ. He has taught us much. We, there is a comfort of love in our hearts. There is a fellowship and a kindred of spirit and that is among us. Affection and mercy just finds its home resting in the people of God here. I can see it in her and in him. And Paul, we want to fulfill your joy. We want to be like minded. And we don't want to do anything through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but, but the lowliness of mind, it rings in our hearts as something that we desire. We want to serve one another. Paul, what does that look like? <clears throat> Could you help us explain it just a little bit more? A picture is words. A, th- a picture is worth truly a thousand words, and then this maybe infinitely more. Could you paint that for just a moment? That's the apostle Paul sits down with a canvas, with his palette of colors, and with his easel, and he begins to paint that picture of which humility truly looks like. And he begins, interestingly, number one, with an imperative. If you're taking notes, that's what I would 
encourage you to write down that, that first and foremost, we're going to frame this picture in the form of an imperative. Paul's painting this picture, and that border, that frame in which he paints that picture is an imperative. He says in verse number 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Boys and girls, you say, you may ask, what's an imperative, pastor? It's simply a command. It's a simple do this. It's something that is required. Maybe with your mother and father, they may look at you and they may be giving you advice and they say, you know, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And they give you the option. They're expounding upon you their wisdom. And they're giving you the right possibly or the choice to um, go to your own doom or detriment and uh, sometimes that's a better teacher in and of itself. They give you the option um, with their wisdom. And then sometimes they say, do this. You know, there's no option. It's non-negotiable. And this is a task that the authority over you has given you that you are to pursue. That's the idea of an imperative. And that's what Paul has given the people at Philippi here. An imperative, um, it is... A command. Now it's important to remember that in the realm of a Christian, a believer, it's not a requirement or command to achieve salvation or to be saved. There does live in Christ and in the people of God a law that He requires for all His children, and we are subject to obey and to obey by grace and grace alone. Same thing in a similar way that you have household rules. The children don't <coughs> clean their rooms. They don't take out the trash to be or to remain in your love or to be and to remain your children. But they are to do it out of willful, submissive, joyful obedience. That's the ultimate goal and out of the grace and authority that, that you have. They do it because they are. They are to do it uniquely because they are your children. And that's what we see here. A command for the children of God to perform out of the grace that He has bestowed upon them. What's the command? We're told here in this verse that it is our duty to have this mind which was in Christ Jesus and we're to have it in us. That's a command. Let this. It's passive. It's yield yourself to this type of thinking, to this mind, to this judgment. Be this type of person. So you are to, number one, imitate Christ. That's the command. As Christians, this should not surprise us. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise to you, because in reality, this is not really a new command. You know, Christ um, has set Himself as the standard and the pattern of living, even prior to death. You'll see portions of Scripture, such in John chapter number 13, as He washes um, the disciples' feet. He sets Himself and establishes this precedent that they are to follow in that, that the rule or standard of their doing is Christ's example. If he does it, they are to do it. He goes on to say, if you know this, then blessed are you if you do this. And he gives them throughout that portion of Scripture this imperative, this example to follow. And he's saying, follow me. Again, not out of, of a slavish type of servitude to achieve their salvation, but because of what Christ has accomplished in them. 1 John 2 and 3 says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. 
The man who keeps his word is the man who, who's, who's love, who, who the love of God is perfected in him. It's an outward flow of the grace that God has extended to us and the gratitude that we have for God. The obedience truly is wholly a work of grace. It's not mustering up more strength. It's not ingenuity. It's not intellect. It's not skill. Um, it is merely the grace of God in our lives, manifesting itself in a life of love for God and obedience. So in some way, this is not a new command. God has always commanded His people to follow Him. But it too must be understood that this is more than simply um, imitating external acts. This pattern is a pattern of principle, not merely external form. He says, particularly, let this mind be in you. The mind here speaks of having an understanding to think, to judge. It speaks of the faculties of the inner man, your thinking processes, your ability to make decisions, which really raises the stakes, doesn't it? So many people are convinced that they're good people because they've never uh, murdered a person. They've never committed adultery on their wives. They've never done this or that. But here God is clear. You will be as responsible for your thoughts as much as your actions. And that the standard of measure will not be understanding of what is right and wrong necessarily, or your understanding of what is right and wrong, but the very mind of Christ. You are commanded to not only act like Him, you are literally commanded to think like Him, to love like Him, to be angry like Him, to... To make judgments as he would. It's more than just WWJD. It's more than just looking at this passage and saying, I'm going to follow in his footsteps because you cannot be the Savior of all the world. You cannot die for other men's sins. You cannot procure their salvation. You cannot do what Jesus Christ did in the uniqueness of His apostleship, His the very fact that of the God-man. He's not calling you to be the Savior of others. But he is as in First John that we just now um, read, First John chapter number 2. Um, I, I don't think I read this portion, but he goes on to say, By this we know that we are in Him. Um, he who says that He abides in Him ought also to walk just as He walked. He doesn't necessarily say, Walk where I walked. And do what I do. But he says, walk as I walked. That there's a manner in which he walked that we are called to principally follow. We are to think like him. We are to act like him. We are to do it as he would do it if he were us. We are to be like Christ. There is a call here of more than just acting externally like Christ, but, but, but having that mind in us which provoked Christ to do the things that God had ordained for him to do. Thus, in our lives, it will manifest itself differently. <clears throat> but the mind will be the same. And the will that God has for us, we will carry it out as Christ-like as possible, utilizing the principles of things like humility and self-forgetfulness. It will provoke us to make decisions as Christ did. Thus, um, he goes on to say, what did Christ do? He made Himself. He humbled Himself. He took the form of a servant. He became obedient, even to the point of death. Thus, our life will be, um, will be characterized by these decisions that grow out of a humble heart, yet there will be different manifestations of it in accordance with God's will for our life. That's the idea. That, 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 that Christ's life is not just some noble idea that deserves some attention and consideration now and again. No, His life is set forth as the example 
that lays down before us his expectation of all of God's people and even in some authority with divine law. That within this picture, you will be held accountable that you are not like that. Or you'll be rewarded because you were. That, that Christ's true business is artwork. It's the work of the heart. You know, Proverbs 4.23, that's why the um, writer there gives his wisdom and he, and, he, and he exhorts us, guard your hearts. Why? Because out of it, the issues of life flow. Matthew 12, as well as many other places, Jesus Christ gets to the heart of the Pharisees and says, you're, you're like whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. You're, you're washed white on the outside, but you are corrupt within. You are filthy on the inside. Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is not what goes into a man that corrupts him. It is what comes out of a man that corrupts him. That The great work of the Christian life is not to wash your hands. We spend a lot of time at the sink, in front of the mirror, washing our hands to look good in front of other people. This doesn't fly with Jesus Christ. That He died, as we looked this morning, that He died uh, upon that cross, was obedient even unto death, not only to wash your hands, but to wash your hearts, to take out a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, that He may have a people who would be, um, would, who would lovingly commit themselves to Him and to His church and to the a lost and a dying world in humility and self-forgetfulness. God is not calling us to a wooden, literalistic pattern of ourselves after ourselves. But what He is calling us to um, is a life committed to Him from the heart. This is a command for you to not do something, but to be something. Whatever humility and self-forgetfulness is, you won't learn them simply by saying, that looks like a humble guy. I'll, I'll do what he does. I'll fast like he fasts. You know, I'll go to church three times a week like he goes... Um, I'll do that because it seems like that's what, what he does. You know, I'm going to look at the, the book of Acts and see the apostles and they gave everything that they had away. Like, I'm going to do that. That's not a humble person. And that may actually be a prideful person who is striving to achieve something before God. Um, people give all that they have away all the time. But what you're going to find here is that true humility is self-sacrificing and it actually provokes us to obedience to God, number one. And then number two, service to others. That's what you're going to see. A humility that does not produce that is not the humility that is Christ-like. Now, humility is more than just a, a self-deprivating attitude um, towards others. It's more than just self-flagellation and beating yourself up and being overly introspective and, 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 and a worm type of mentality. No, to be in the presence of God like in like Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter number 6 is to recognize yourself before God. Um, how unworthy you are. And when that grace overwhelms you because you come to Him by repentance and faith, a new heart is born in you with a love for God and a love for others. Thus, Isaiah would stand up and say, Lord, send me. <coughs> Where will I go? You'll go to the cities. Until how long? You'll go until it's all desolate. It led to a service of God and others. That's true humility. And this is a command that is laid upon every Christian. Let this mind be in you. The form of the frame in which this reality is set before us is what we would call an imperative. It is something that we must be. And why? Because there are certain things that we must do. 
Um, secondly, you not only see the imperative, but, but, but full, more, more, uh, more importantly, the, the imperative it leads to an illustration. And really, the illustration is the imperative. The, 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 you, you can't, the, the, this is the mind which is in Christ. May we see it this morning. Verses number 6 through 8, we see the illustration. Paul illustrates the principal graces of humility here. By upholding Jesus Christ as the perfect example. To do that, he highlights what we're going to call the three states of Christ's existence. The three states of Christ's existence. Now, the, the dictionary defines a state as just a particular condition. That someone or something's in at a specific time. Boys and girls, that's what I mean. I mean just a particular condition in which Christ was in. And this portion of Scripture, verses 5 through 11, gives us three different states that Christ has been in. First, Christ's pre-incarnate state. Second, Christ's incarnate state. And thirdly, Christ's, in some sense, post-incarnate state. There's probably a better word for that. Um, his, his, his exalted glory, possibly. And he's going to, Paul is going to utilize these realities to illustrate to you and to me what true, perfect, godly, divine humility um, looks like. And this is what he's commanding. This is what he's calling all Christians to. And as was, I think, just passionately exhorted to us this morning, um, that, that, that you too must realize that this is a possibility in your life. You know? That what Christ is laying upon His people this morning is not something that is unattainable. If you think this morning because of your flesh, the world, and the devil, um, that you cannot perform this type of humility or this type of humility cannot be born in you or you cannot display it, then you undermine the very work of Christ. You know, that we live we've, particularly within the conservative camp or a Bible-believing camp or a Reformed camp or, or whatever camp you want to throw us into um, in this, uh, again, oh, what a worm am I, uh, a sinner type of mentality. And, and yes, there is sin that remains in us. And yes, many days that sin does capture us and we struggle in our minds as in Romans chapter number 7. But what we have to realize is that Jesus Christ lived and He died as the perfect man. Why? To make us like Him. Thus reckon yourselves dead and live unto Christ and live in the power of the Spirit. Walk in His statutes. That's what Jeremiah 31, the new covenant brings. He's going to put a spirit in our hearts and He's going to write a law upon it. He's going to cause us to walk in His statutes. Well, this is one of those great statutes. And ultimately, that's the great statute. Be like Christ. Follow Him. Have this mind. He's writing it upon your heart. This morning, you and I, if we are in Christ, have the ability... Not only the ability, but the call and command to exhibit this type of humility because we are these type of persons. Why? Because those are the only type of people that Jesus saves sinners and makes them righteous and gives them a heart after God. That you and I have this ability to humble ourselves by the grace of God, by the power of God, by the Spirit of God, because of what Christ wrought for us and in us and through us, we have this privilege and this blessing this morning to live it out. It is not unattainable for the people of God. Actually, this is why Jesus Christ died, so that you would be a holy people. And part of that holiness is patterning yourself after Jesus Christ. 
The humility and self-forgetfulness of Christ does is exemplified. This morning, particularly in those first two states, is what we're going to look at. In his movement from his pre-incarnate states to his incarnate states. If we understand the heart of that, then we'll understand the heart of humility this morning. So state number one, and I'll explain these as I go. Um, Christ in the state of his pre-incarnate glory. Pre-incarnate. Boys and girls, we mean by that before he became flesh. Pre means before. Incarnate means invested in flesh. He took upon himself flesh. He became a human. Most, much simpler way, boys and girls. This was Christ before he became a man or the God-man. The state of our Lord before he became incarnate. Verse number 6. Who... Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What was the state or condition that our Lord was in? Number one, He existed in the form of God. Verse number 6. Who? Who Christ? Being in the form of God. That Jesus Christ existed as God from all eternity. What was the state or condition that He was in? He existed in the form of God from all eternity. I want to draw your attention to two particular words in this verse. Number one, being. Number two, form. Number one, being. It literally means, it's, it's not just a simple word for be. I mean, it literally means to, to un, uh, it comes from two words, um, hype O, which means under, and RK, beginning. RK would be like in the beginning. Uh, John chapter one and verse number one, in the beginning. <coughs> that, 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 there's a nuance to this that simply means more than just to be. It means that he was already existing as God. It denotes the continuance of a previous state or existence. He did not become this prior to his incarnation. Prior to taking upon flesh, he was in the form of God. That boys and girls, that, that, that prior to his existence as man, what it's saying that he, he, he continues on as he becomes a man is something that he always was and that was God. There was never a time that Jesus Christ was not God. That's what the word, the, the significance of the word being there means. To form. This term form, it, it, it speaks of, of the expression of his essential nature. It speaks of more than just a mere appearance, although appearance is part of it. But a form of appearance that is true to the nature that underlies it. Which truly and fully expresses the being that underlies it. In other words, Christ existed in the form of God, having in Him and displaying from Him the essential nature of God from all eternity. Boys and girls, it could be paraphrased like this. Christ incarnate, Christ in the flesh, who existing prior to this, existed as God. In the state consistent with God and His Godhood. I know that it seems like a simple statement and a dust statement, but that's what He's trying to get across. His state of pre-incarnate glory was a state in which nothing went forth from Him or came to Him that was not fitting or appropriate for God. And we may... And in this moment, it's imperative that we go here. But there is a sense in which this seems like too holy a ground to even stand on. What was Christ like before He came flesh? But it is extremely imperative that you and I understand this to understand the humility of Christ. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6 for just a second. 
It is imperative for us to understand something of his previous state, to understand the reverence and love that he had for the Father and the love and joy that he takes in his bridegroom. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 1, you probably recognize that portion of Scripture. I've already referenced it. What we find here is that Isaiah comes in in an encounter with our Lord, with God, God enthroned. You read these words in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, who Isaiah, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. One cried and said to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. No doubt the glory cloud that signifies the very presence of a holy God. So I said in me, this is Isaiah's response, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. I mean, what else am I going to say, Lord? <laughs> you know, I'm in your presence, awestruck, falling upon his face, thinking of, 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 of the, the reality that I sh- I'm in the presence of God and I shouldn't even speak. I'm in the midst of seraphim and cherubim um, who are in their perfection, continue to cover their face from His glory even though they have no sin. That even in their utter positive righteousness, they still um, fall upon their faces and worship Him regularly. Not to hide from Him their defiled nature, but simply because He is worthy. He is worthy. John chapter number 12 and verse number 37. Our Lord is ministering to the disciples and others that are there. And you read these words. But although He had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in Him. Speaking of our Lord. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Verse number 35. Therefore they could, say, they could not believe because Isaiah said again. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. And if you go on in Isaiah 6 and verse number 10. That's exactly what you read. Um, those, he's quoting Isaiah 6 there. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Verse 41. These things Isaiah said. When he saw his glory and spoke of him. I believe that what he's referencing there, his glory, is that he is that the writer of John is speaking of Christ. That in Isaiah chapter number six, that the person of the Godhead that, that, that Isaiah falls down before is Christ himself in his pre-incarnate glory. It was in this state that John says as well, he was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Paul says um, of, of, of Christ as well, He created all things visible and visible. Um, everything was held together by Him, and in all Him and in Him all things consist. That this was a period in eternity past in which all that, but, that, that, that nothing was directed to Him but that which was fitted for God. Unabated worship. The worship and adoration of angels. The cherubim bowed down before Him. The seraphim covered their eyes and rendered to Him all honor and glory and praise. That Christ existed in a form prior to His enfleshment in which there was no mockery. There was no abuse. There was no unbelief. There was no dishonor. There was no withholding of riches and glory. That everything that, that radiated from Him was unveiled to the point to where even righteous beings created by Him must cover their eyes in His unabated glory. They could not withstand it. This is what we're talking about. A state that is worthy only of God. In which He received the glory that was due His name. Verse number 6. And He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. How did He regard that state? He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. You could literally translate that a number of ways. The CSB, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. The NIV, which I'm not usually that big of a fan of, but it gives the point here. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You could also translate it, he counted it not as a thing to be selfishly retained. Which kind of gives the point of the entirety of the passage. How did he regard his state previous to his incarnation? Not as something to be exploited, not something to use to his own advantage, not something to be selfishly retained. He did not see his pre-existent state as a reason not to go and to enflesh himself in obedience to the Father and for the procurement of the people for himself. One writer says, there are legitimate varieties of meaning, and they must have been more evident to him, talking about Paul, than to us. So we may surely allow each one to contribute the fullness of truth he desired to share with us. At all events, he goes on to say, the problem centers on the word, a thing to be grasped. It's a hard thing to translate. It's only written here in, Philipp um, in Philippians. This might mean first, he says, something to be held on to at all costs. In this case, the treasure would be the possession of literally equal things with God. The Son's co-possession with the Father of eternal divine glory. The glory which in His incarnate earthly life He longed to have restored. You'll remember in John 17, Christ prays, And now, O Father, glorify me with Yourself with the glory which I had before you the world was. He goes on to say to us, lacking categories of mind to appreciate heaven realities. All things, these things are just mere words. And that's true. How many times have you read through this? You know, and it's just words on a page. But to Christ, he goes on to say, but to Him, 
to Him a known and loved reality which He freely surrendered. Is this the mind of Christ? He goes on to provoke us. To take what is best, greatest, and most desirable to oneself and to abandon it freely in the interest of a more cherished purpose. That we read through these and have read through maybe our Bible in a year and continue to gloss over it. And just as I drove here this morning without thinking of the glory of Christ as the heavens displayed it, I often trek over this passage without pondering the great mystery and glory of what truly happened here. The only one that was ever worthy to be glorified, worshipped, and honored, and to receive the glory that is due His name. There He is in utter, unabated glory, receiving everything that He deserves, the most pure of all non-created, self-existent beings. And all that glory and splendor. And when you read John 17 in that prayer, as He agonizes to the Father, Father, restore me. I long to be with You. That love that existed between me and the Father, unabated, that glory, that relationship, that purity, that undefilement, has now entered into flesh and laid all that aside. Why? To be weak. To be spat upon. To, be, to have his flesh ripped from his back as well as from his heart as he's rejected for three and a half years. To, 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 to undergo voluntarily. Um, to, to, to go to his own and to be received and all. To give that up. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He thought it not something to be exploited. He thought it not something that... He thought it not a good reason not to go. In Isaiah chapter number 49. You don't necessarily need to turn there. <clears throat> but what you find throughout the servant songs. Which is a number of chapters in Isaiah. Is at times this... <clears throat> this what we might call an anthropomorphism, um, this way that God relates to us reality and eternal truths, but He uses human language to accomplish that. And what you find in Isaiah 49, as well as many other places, um, is this conversation that seems to have happened prior to creation between the Father and the Son. And then what you see is this covenant, uh, I would argue this covenant that is being made between Father and Son as the Father sends the Son and the Son says, I'll go. You see that same type of language all throughout the Gospels. Why uh, the, uh, Jesus will say, my Father sent me. I'm here to do the will of my Father. And He keeps calling back to the, to the sending and the, the, the will of God the Father. And thus... The Son subjects Himself to the will of the Father to come and to in obedience to the Father to die for a people. And in Isaiah 49, you see some of that conversation. In verse number 1, you read, Listen, O coastlands, to me and take heed, you peoples afar from me. The Lord has called me from the womb. This is Christ here. From the matrix of my mother, He has made mention of my name. And He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In His quiver, He has hidden me. And He said to me, You are my servant, O Israel. He's talking to Christ here. In whom I will be glorified. 
Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small thing. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. He says this, which is uniquely quoted in the, the Gospels. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to Him whom man despises, to Him whom nations abhor, to the servants of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. And to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and the pastures shall be on the desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. And he goes on. Verse number 13, Sing, O heavens, be joyful, earth. Break out and sing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have mercy on His afflicted. And the idea is, in Philippians chapter 2 that in Isaiah that what that as this conversation is going on and his covenant is being made and the father is saying I want you to go I'm going to give you as a covenant to the people the darkness will be raised salvation is theirs Jesus Christ in theory total theory just to, to provoke your thinking might have said I don't have to go. Why would I? It's not incumbent upon me. But what does he do? He doesn't think his God. I mean, after all, I'm God. He doesn't utilize his position as God and say, I have no responsibility to them. What does he do? No, he says, I will go. I will Go. We have this unique conversation between the Father and the Son before eternity. And the Father says, I'm going to give you. And the Son responds. How does he respond? He doesn't say, but I'm God. That means I don't have to go. I'm God and my position excludes me from service. No, he did not think equality with God a thing to be selfishly retained or a means to serve or to exploit him. On the contrary, he saw himself uniquely qualified to do what was needed to be done in, in order that, that God the Father would be honored honored through His obedience, and that salvation would be given to all the earth. Who better to serve? Who better to give? Maybe He would say, I am uniquely qualified. Paul gives this illustration, in some sense, going to give you some application to teach us whatever lofty position we might possess. It should never be an argument against humility or service. It is actually that position that serves as a platform for humility. Without position, you could not humble yourself. Position, in some sense, serves as a means to supply you with the platform to humble yourself. You can never say, well, you know, um, you can never be presented with a service. And you say, well, 
I'm too much for that. I'm too high for that. Don't you know who I am? God may look back at him and say, don't you know why I gave you that? You know why I put a kneecap on your leg? So that you'd learn how to stoop. You know why I put you in that position? I gave you that business. I made you a father so that you could bend down to your children and serve. You know why I gave you that husband? You know why I gave you that wife? You know why I gave you all of the rewards and accolades that you seem to have um, mustered up upon yourself? No, providentially and graciously those were given. Why? So that you could utilize that as a form uh, for service. The positions that God gives us um, are so that we can humble ourselves and serve one another. Jesus Christ himself, God, had in some sense the right to say, like, who, why should I have to go? But he doesn't utilize that reality as a means, as, a, as an excuse not to. It is actually that that uniquely qualifies him to be the one for service. Another way to say it is that he's not going to selfishly lay hold of his rights at the hand of disunity with the Father or the detriment of his bride. Thus, he concludes to go. He considers it robbery, not, not robbery to be equal with God. He makes a judgment in his mind. He makes a decision. He controls himself. It's voluntary. It's self-imposed. It's voluntarily humiliation. It's condescension. It is something that he judges. He looks and he makes a conscious decision at this moment. He considers all of it. He considers everything that he has. He looks around at the seraphim and the cherubim. He looks at all of his glory and he, he makes a decision decision to go. You could almost, if, if we could, say that it's at this moment in Christ's thinking that He makes that decision to go. After He evaluates everything, let me say that included you. It's one thing to say, I'll give it all up. It's another thing to say, I'll give it up for that. That He sees us. In greater language than we could ever give, like, as, as the harlot of Israel, who continually kept to, to mock and to, to ridicule and to run away and to rebel and to make and, and, and to, to rebel against his name, not only in mind, but also in deed and totally um, spiritual idolatry, turn his way from the Lord. This is us every day. And he considers all of that. And as he considers all of his glory, he lays it aside. As he considers, and as he considers us, he still goes. That's the idea. He considered it all. He weighs it in the balances. He doesn't do it in, in ignorance. He looks and he makes the judgment. And the judgment is, is to empty himself, to make himself. That's what he goes on to say. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He empties himself. You may have a translation that says of what? Not of his divine nature, but something. All throughout the New Testament, there is something that every time this word is used, it speaks of a deprivation or a depriving of something, something. There is a loss here in God. 
Not of his essential attributes, not of his divine nature, and nothing that makes him God. God does he lay aside, but he does lay aside something. Arguably, his glory and his riches. How does he do it? He does it by taking. You may, you may want to write that down. It was an emptying, but it was an emptying by taking. Which is strange math, isn't it? <laughs> but it's true. He qualifies there that the emptying, that, that he, he laid aside certain things. How? By taking upon himself the form of a servant. The form of a slave. It could be translated there, a bond servant. The same word that Paul uses of himself. In some sense, he makes himself equal with men. The Apostle Paul included. The term here, form, is the exact same word that is used in verse 6 to being in the form of God. What did we say? That it, was, it gave an appearance of an essential nature that, that He was purely God. And that was displayed. In this moment, as Christ is born into, conceived in Mary's womb, He takes upon Himself the form of a bondservant. It can be rightfully said that everything about him now is a bondservant. He truly is a slave. How? Coming in the likeness of men. Or the form of man, but it's a different term form in the appearance of man. Because he is a truly a man, but he's not only a man. He's the God-man. He is in divine form as well as in human form. He is yet, yet in his humility um, to men. He comes in the likeness of men such that, that, that no one would notice. It's part of his humility. We have little to nothing recorded of his first 30 years of life. Why? Because he appears in the likeness of men. Why? Because he is a man. Hebrews tells us that he becomes like us in all points. Why? So that he could die as us, live for us and die as us. That his righteousness is be imputed to our account, a purely holy human life. And that our sins could be laid upon his account. But, but while he's here, you may wonder, how, did, how could they reject him? Because that's all they saw him as, was just a man. You imagine that, that, that in the veiling of his glory, he takes upon the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sin, but the likeness, the appearance of a man. Such that in John chapter 10 and verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man, make yourself gone. Luke 4, 22, so all bore witness of him. To him and marveled at his gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Time and time again, they're going to look and say, we know his father and his mother. Like this guy's claiming to be God. But we know he's just a man. We know he's a man. Why? Because he emptied himself of all that glory. That glory. Thus he limits himself to human form in some capacity with pictures at times of him unveiling the glory such as the transfiguration or when he calms the seas yet at the same time you find him subject to human weakness hungering and thirsting in the desert sorrowful and troubled prior to the, the cross totally dependent upon the Father leaning upon his will and his spirit as he agonizes over the death that is to come yet at times his glory shines forth and they say who who else but God could calm the seas like this? Second Corinthians 8, 9, He who has become rich became poor for our, sake, our, our sakes. God the Father chose that the eternal Word 
ever existing in the form of God. Worlds and galaxies spilled into existence from the word of His mouth. That this same Jesus should become an infinitesimal speck in the womb of a woman. He who created the laws of physics is still boggled with the greatest minds of this world has ever given a stage would, would, would subject himself to waking up and crying in the midnight hour to alert Mary his mother that he needs to nurse. He who is the wisdom of God and contains all knowledge because he's the creator of all things is now learning the Hebrew alphabet. He's saying questions to Joseph like, what is this and why that? Maybe those seem like trivial things. But what about He who created the 326 quintillion gallons of estimated water and a system to replenish it in this earth would hang, would hang upon a cross and thirst? He, the chief justice of known and unknown universe, all things invisible and visible, and the framer of all the moral code, the one who sets up kings and removes them, would submit himself to the sentence of an unjust governor by the name of Pilate, a man he knit in his mother's womb. The one who breathes the breath of life into the dust of the ground submits to be buried by that dust. He who is our rest had no place to lay his head. He whose yoke is easy and his burden was light was wearied by Jacob's will. Why? Because he considered his godhood and his glory and his riches not something to be grasped. In obedience to the Father and in love for a bride. Verse number 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And it's almost a parallel statement. Many people believe that this is actually a hymn that the early Christians would sing and Paul is recounting that to him. That the same realities are just paralleled in a different way. That he not only humbles himself in taking on likeness of men, but he continues to go further and further down and takes one more step, even being obedient to death. Yea, the death of the cross. Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Maybe there's even more of a nuance to the Roman citizens here. You know, in Rome it was actually illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. Um, why? Because it was seen only for slaves and the most debauched of people. Um, a Roman citizen could never, could never even fathom in his mind dying by crucifixion. Why? Because it was laid, left for the worst of the worst. Thus, as Paul recounts this to them, no doubt there's a Galatians 3.13 mindset as, as the cursedness of God, the wrath of God falls upon this man, Christ Jesus. But also, he dies a death that we wouldn't even die. Why? Love for the Father. That's what he says in obedience. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And then number two, love for His bride. He looked not upon His own interests, but the interests of others. What does humility cost? 
Number one, it cost him the Son of God, his life and his death. For us, it'll cost us our lives as well. This is the pattern, church. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. He became a slave to men, that they might become saints to God. Now we are called to follow in this pattern. So if humility is going to be a consistent reality in our lives, I want to give you just a few lines of thought, five more minutes. I think, number one, you need to see it as a command. I think you need to look at all of Christ's life. And that needs to be the standard by which you strive. We're not to measure ourselves by men. We are to measure ourselves by God. Thus, we are to see it as a command. Why? Because it is. It is our duty to cultivate the mind of Christ in our lives. We must see this as a non-negotiable and be committed to the task. Why? Because if you don't, you won't. If you see it as negotiable and you abuse the grace of God in your life and say, you know, it's all under the blood and if I do, that's fine. And if I don't, you don't understand grace. Again, it is not a law that is laid upon us so that we can achieve salvation, but it is a, a, a law that Jesus Christ enters into this life, achieves salvation for us, imputes that righteousness, righteousness to our accounts, gives us a new heart. Why? So that we may walk in His statutes and put His divine nature ever before us. Why? So that we might walk after Him, but not only walk after Him externally, but be like Him internally, thus that our actions would be dictated by the type of man we are. We are to be not only um, externally good men, but we are to be the right type of men. You are to be godly men, faithful men, godly women, faithful women, Christ-like men and Christ-like women. Recognize that Christ's life is not some noble idea that simply deserves our attention and consideration every now and again, but it is the life and standard by which we'll be measured not as the source of our condemnation, but that life by which Jesus Christ purchased on the tree. He purchased it for us. He purchased it for us. And it's heart work. It's not simply you don't taste, you don't touch, you don't look. It will be by the measure of your heart. Right? Some of you have heard of the descriptions of branches of religion like Roman Catholicism who have branches that they take whips and shards of glass and pieces of metal and they'll beat themselves with it. And you might say, well, what in the world would make them do that? Seems crazy. But if you were to ask them why, they may say, I'm seeking to be like Christ in His sufferings. That moment you might sympathize to some extent or pity the poor soul because they've missed it, but maybe we're even more poor souls because we've missed it. We think that because we came to church this morning, or we read our Bibles, we read through the Gospels in a year, did a few things like Jesus, fed the poor, gave a guy $5 on the side of the road there to feed the hungry, that in some way we're like Christ. And we're really not like Christ at all. It may just be like the Pharisees who did it to be seen by men. This is an utter death knell to legalism. 
We may be even the greater fools because it's so much more subtle in American Christianity. That we must realize that in this command, Jesus Christ purchased the um, possibility and the, 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 not only just the likelihood, but the reality that you and I can be this. Why? Because He died for it. He gave us a new heart and that we are to ever look to Christ. So number two, keep Jesus Christ before you as your pattern of life. Not only look to it as a command, but in that command framed is the pattern of life. Thus you must look to it. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms us. We can't do better or simply be better or follow a 10 to 12 step plan to be more like Christ. We must see Him. Don't you love it? But you love it, Paul is not teaching an academic class here, a theological study. He's not trying to teach you about the pre-incarnate and the incarnate and the post-incarnate and His exalted glory. You know what he's doing? He's looking at the church and he's seeing a deficiency and he's saying, look to Christ. Look to Christ. That we would do well to remember that this privilege is given to us not to tread on high and holy grounds theologically. It's not just to satisfy our curiosity of the mysteries of God, but it is given to reform our lives. That Jesus Christ is ever set before us to make us more like Himself. Thus Paul, um, seeking unity within the body, desiring humility within their souls, um, says, doesn't say do better, do more. He says, look to Christ. Open your eyes. A couple of weeks ago, I made application concerning sacrificing ourselves for others. And some of us have an unwillingness to do that. Yet on the other side, there are some of us who tread upon these pages and upon these waters and in this life day in and day out and leave utterly unchanged. There are some who utilize the grace of God to make them lazy and they sit around while being served yet never using their position to serve another soul. Now what would it mean? You, you, you think about it. You think about the, the reality of Jesus Christ walking 33 years of His life and, and they not seeing His glory and they not, they not worshiping and falling down and you think, man, if I'd have been there, I'd, I, would have, I would have done the same thing. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't have done the same thing. I'd have worshipped Him. I'd have been in the twelve. They'd have made 13 for me, you know. <laughs> We're so prideful, not realizing that, 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 that we too do the same thing every single day. We're like the man in Luke 16 who cries out and says, Go back, Abraham. If you'll go back, my brothers will be saved. And he says, No, they have the law and the prophets. Miracles won't save them. They have the Word of God. And then he would say the same thing to us today. You know, show yourself in some miraculous way. Abraham may call out and say, you have the law and the prophets. You have the book of Philippians. You've been in it now for three months and it's done nothing for your souls. Open your eyes. What more do I have to do to lay Christ before you? Open your eyes. Christ Jesus is our pattern of life and we must keep Him. Think of a Paul this morning like a painter. There he is with his palette, with all of his colors in his brush, his easel and his canvas before him, and he sits before a beautiful landscape as we should. And to recreate that landscape, he's, he's pulling paint from the palette and he's putting it on the canvas, but he's constantly looking beyond. That's our life. Humility and grace. As we keep looking to Christ, we must keep that pattern ever before us. That's the only change. Number three, recognize that only when we have this mind corporately, 
Will we have true gospel unity? Recognize that only when we have this mind corporately will we have true gospel unity. The, the, the command here is not for you, it's for us. Let this mind be in you all. You could translate that, it's plural. Let this mind be among you all. Let this mind be among us. That what we have is, um, by human nature, James tells us in James chapter number 4, um, just the inherent ability to make a mess of everything. Why? Because of our own pride and our own lusts. What's the source of divisions and wars, he says? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? James 4.1 You lust and you don't have. You murder and you covet. You can't obtain. You ask and do not receive because you ask and miss adulterers and adulteresses. You know what he says? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Lament and mourn and weep. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. Next week, we'll see how he lifts them up. He's almost, that's the pattern. James is just following the pattern. You're disunified. There's wars among you. Why? Because you love yourself. Does it not begin within you? Are you not fighting for yourself? Use your position. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He'll exalt you in due time. That's what He did with Christ. Christ utilized His position and thought His Godhood's not a reason not to serve. So He leaves it, veils Himself, all that glory, gives up His rights which He shouldn't have to do, dies for a people and God exalts Him to the right hand of God the Father that every name would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When that permeates a church, that is a church that is effective for the call of Christ. That's his call this morning. It's not just to you. It's to all of us. It's to all of us. I don't know. I don't know really how to teach you that. I don't know how to show you that. I, I feel incapable this morning. I, I don't know what to say. Our Lord is beyond words other than what he said. May we all my own heart included, see Him in such a high and holy way that the gap that He spanned was a greater gap than you and I will ever span. That our sacrifice will never um, accrue to what He did. That He is our pattern. He'll never ask more of you than He's already accomplished in and of Himself. So follow after your Lord. Seek whatever you can do to obey the Father. Express your love to Him through serving others. And that will come in the form of obedience, service, and sacrifice. And it begins with humility. May God lessen us. May, may, may God increase, as John says. And may we decrease. Um, and the only way that that happens is Isaiah chapter number 6. Father, show us Yourself. Show us Your Son. Exalt Him in our minds. Make our minds like Him. That when I get up, not only are my hands clean, but my heart is. And help me to, to wake up day in and day out considering others more than myself. That more than myself or ourselves. This is Christ. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Next week we'll learn and see that he exalts those type of people just as he exalted Christ. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you. What a lofty scripture, Father. What a reality. 
that is inexpressible, yet full of glory. Father, our minds escape us, and words cannot tell the beauty of the picture that is ever painted in Philippians chapter 2. May the Spirit of God etch it in our hearts and our minds. Thus, it would transform us by the renewing of our minds. Father, help us recognize that there is nothing but the life of Christ that pleases you. So help us to run after it. And not just what he did with his hands and feet, but Father, the type of man that he was. Father, I desire more than anything to be a more faithful pastor, to be a more faithful husband, to be a more faithful father, a more faithful brother in Christ, a member of this church. Some days I find confidence in saying, I did this. I did that and that's what Jesus did and at the same time Father I pray that you would cultivate continually and consistently in my heart Father the mind of Christ that would provoke me to such things because I don't always do that and I know that we're not perfect men nor can we ever be but you utilize even these things Father to convict our hearts to help us to look to Christ so Father make us more Help me to be the husband, the, the father, the pastor, father, and that would be born out of a Christ-like heart. That's the, this ministry may not look exactly like his ministry because it's not supposed to, but that you would set the will of God before us, that we would run after it with a Christ-like heart, and that principally, Father, we'd make decisions that honor you. Father, give us a humble heart. Show us Christ. Father, Help us to realize that this is something that we can and are able to do because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf, that he desires it as much as anything, that his death and life are worthy of it. And Father, help us to pursue it with the utmost joy. Father, help us not to maintain and keep a worm mentality, um, but Father, to stand up with boldness and courage, with reverence and joy, and to pursue after a life that is honoring to God and in service to others. And Father, give us the strength to live Give us the strength to die. Not only on that great day when we'll see you face to face, but Father, even today, Father, help us to humble ourselves, to die to self. Father, to love others more than we love ourselves. Father, we need you to accomplish this by the power of your spirit. Father, because I can't do it in my own strength. Father, give us this heart among all of us. Give us this unity of spirit within this church, Father, that the world would see it. And they would know that the Father sent the Son because we lived, Father. Not that his bride would receive the glory, but that the bridegroom, Father, would receive all the glory that is due his name. Father, Jesus Christ is worthy. And may he this day receive the reward of his suffering, not only in sinners being saved, but saints living a holy life. And Father, in all reality, the only one that I can affect change in is me. Um, so help me to yield myself. Let this mind be in me. Father, help me to yield myself and humble myself before the hands of an almighty God. Hide me under his wing, Father, and make me like his son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing.